Open your Bibles to Romans 13. We're going to finish chapter 13 today, and then next week, two weeks, we'll be doing 14, and then after that, probably two weeks in 15. We're not going to do 16. There's nothing in there other than greetings and hellos and goodbyes and, and uh, that kind of thing, so we'll probably skip uh, chapter 16. We're going to read 8 through 14. It's in your bulletin, or if you have your scriptures with you. Now hear God's word. Owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. For the commandments say you must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not covet. These and other such commandments are summed up in this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to others, so love fulfills the requirements of the law. This is all the more urgent for you to know, for how late it is. Time is running out. Wake up, for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here. So remove your dark deeds like dirty clothing and put, them, put on the shining armor of right living. Because we belong to the day, we must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness or sexual promiscuity and immoral living or quarreling, or jealousy. Instead, clothe yourselves with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. This is the word of the Lord. As we've been saying, the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans lays an incredible foundation, deep and wide. Because when he hits chapter 12, he is going to start giving imperative commands. These are not suggestions. They are demands, obligations that God is placing on those who for 11 chapters have been instructed in your immovable position with God. He's never going to hold his nose. He's never going to, well, maybe they're not doing too good. I'm going to dump them. Never. I have saved you, I have sanctified you, I'm going to continue to say, I'm going to continue to help you improve in your life, and I will keep you till the end, and I will raise you from the dead. Will you trust me? For 11 chapters, magnificent theology, deep and rich, and also pastoral, he creates this foundation because in chapter 12, he's going to blitz through 12, 13, 14, and 15, Lots of imperatives. Here's what, here's what being a Christian looks like. And I think a lot of folks, especially here in the West, you come to Christianity and it's kind of like an add-on. I got my life going pretty good, but you know, I could sure use a, a little spiritual thing over here. And you know, I've, got, I've heard the music's really good at Christ the King and everybody's so friendly and they serve lunch at membership classes free. I think I'll go there and kind of add this to my already well-ordered life. 
And that isn't Christianity, folks. Christianity is like C.S. Lewis said, it's not remodeling an old house. It's tearing it down and rebuilding a new house. And it can be extraordinarily painful. And so uh, that's the role of the church. We are here to support one another in this journey, this struggle going forward because there are obligations and demands that are placed on us but they're not impossible to do. And the reason is because someone has come before and done them perfectly in our place. Not so that we would not have to ever do anything else, but to free us from the slavery of sin so that we could obey Him and love to obey Him and be willing to crucify any desire or lust or passion in our lives that go contrary to God and His Word. In other words, our entire loyalty of our heart is given over to someone else. A new monarch, a new king, a new savior, a new ruler, a new father. All of those metaphors, a shepherd, a lover, a lover of our souls. All of those metaphors are used to tell us, now you're free. Obey me. Follow me. Love me. Because I first loved you. Christianity is not a religion of works. It's a religion of grace. But I'm shocked at how many people Like Martin Luther wrote to Erasmus and said, I don't even think you know how to spell the word grace when they were in their legalistic arguments over works and law and grace and love. Luther said, you don't know how to spell grace. And I'm amazed that people in the Christian church, even in our church, see grace as a passport to bad living. And it's not. In fact, if you understand grace, there's nothing, absolutely nothing that you won't lay on the altar, a living sacrifice like Dawson talked about a couple weeks ago. You'll lay your life down and you'll say, you know, I don't know what to do with these desires. I don't know what to do with these passions. But I trust you and I will follow you. And when I fail, I will repent. And when I'm doing well, I will give you all the praise and glory. And I will trust you all the way. Now you're talking about apostolic Christianity. Not Presbyterian Christianity. Not Catholic Christianity. Not Eastern Orthodox Christianity or Baptist or any other of the thousands of crazy split-off denominations that we're so proud of. But apostolic Christianity. Where you're all in. And so, listen carefully. The first seven verses... He said, submit to the government authorities. And I know that runs raw. It goes against everything we believe in America, that we should be out there and opposing our government whenever they don't satisfy us. But let me give you very quickly. The first thing he says is submit to the authorities because they are ordained by God. It does not, listen, does not assume good government. In fact, it assumes the opposite, Nero was the emperor around this time. 
It teaches that our disposition and our behavior towards government and political authority and all of that is more important than the decisions, good or bad, that the government makes. How we react and how we act is far more important than what they do. Submission is not weakness. Submission is not resignation. It's not fatalism. It's rather than that, anytime you submit to an authority, whether it's in government or in church, you're demonstrating your faith in Jesus Christ. Submission fully embraces God's sovereignty and character. Submission to authorities is a reflection of our submission to God. Submission acknowledges that these authorities are for our good because the world has fallen. Can you imagine if there weren't laws, even in places like Russia or China, if they didn't have laws, you would have anarchy. So even in these bad government places, and even when the Government in the United States is at its very worst. We don't have anarchy and a zombie apocalypse. Christian obedience to authorities, or disobedience, I should say, should be rare. In other words, you don't just get rebellious and say, I have a right, I'm a Christian, I can, I can oppose the government because they raised my taxes by 1.25%. You're, you forget about it. You're going to get to heaven and find out Jesus tell, tell, tells you, you pay your taxes, and you do it with a smile. And if you have the, the privilege of voting, go vote if you don't like it. But rebellion, no. Okay? Everybody okay? No tomatoes are going to get thrown at me? Promise? All right. Disobedience to authority should be rare, and there's only a few occasions when you can justify it as being righteous opposition. And if you want to talk about that, fine. Avoid whataboutism. This is, this is really bad in our day because people say, well, what about this, and what about that, and what about the... What about these people? And what about those people? And we start pointing finger. What about, what about, what about? That's out of range for the Christian. It doesn't matter what about. You say, well, what about this? Or, no, it doesn't matter what about. No, but you don't understand. Oh, yeah, I do. And so do you. If you understand grace and you understand your Bible and you understand what God has said when He said Jesus Christ is Lord... And we get up and we sing these beautiful songs about God's sovereignty and all of this stuff. We're saying something. We're saying there's no what about. There is a king on his throne and he is sovereign and his character is good and we will trust him. Yes? We're going to trust him. No what about nothing. What about the cross? That's what we should ask. What about that? What about the incarnation? What about Jesus Christ coming to this world and being humiliated and shamed for our sake and then we can't even take the little slightest bit of criticism because we don't know it's just not fair.
Listen to this from an Iranian pastor. Uh, his name's Nima Alizadeh. This, this blew my mind. Paul believes we should expect most governments are evil and corrupt, making our humble submission a sort of Christian subversion. Don't you like that? No? Our humble submission is what God uses to become a subversion of the evil in this world. In other words, we do what he just told us. Don't try to overcome evil with evil. Don't fight fire with fire. Fight with the goods and righteousness that have been given to you. And if you do that, if you trust me, I will subvert every power and every authority for your sake and for the sake of my world. I'll do it. I'll do the subversion. I will bring vengeance on the unjust and the unrighteous. Will you trust me? It's all he's been saying. A kind of Christian subversion. It's really, folks, the meek shall inherit the earth. The joke was the meek inherit the earth because nobody else is going to want it. Well, I'll tell you who wants it. Jesus Christ wants it. It's His. He came in the flesh because it's His. He came to reclaim it. He gave His last drop of His blood for this world. And He promised that He would redeem the governments and the nations and the people. He promised. And all He asked us to do is submit to Him and trust Him. And so this is a call from your pastor. Let's change our ideas about how we are to enter into this modern 21st century and do it well. How can we subvert the evil that's out there without doing what the church has done for centuries? And that's just trying to accrue more and more power and get drunk on power like the harlot in the book of Revelation. Get drunk on the blood of the martyrs who are saying no. It is not weakness to be kind and gentle and to speak respectfully and to honor people. It's not weakness. It is strength. So, now he goes into this next section. There's a connection in why I'm making it. He ends these saying, pay your taxes. Pay what is owed. Pay the dues. He doesn't qualify it. He doesn't say, well, if they want to tax 70% of your income, you can fight back. He doesn't say that. I don't like that kind of stuff. I don't like taxes. I I will cheat on my taxes if I can. But he's asking us to pay and to do right before God and man. Then he says this. Look at verse 1. Or verse 8. Owe no one anything except the obligation to love one another. Love one another. So we're going to look at these three things. Law and love. Gospel wokeness. And I hope this makes sense to you. And finally, how do we clothe ourselves with the presence of Jesus Christ? Because otherwise you're going to be miserable 
especially here at Christ the King, because Dawson and I are going to continue to, to, to point this out. It's for your good and for God's glory that we learn what He's demanding of us. Why is He demanding it? Because of grace. Look at what I've done for you. Look at the mercy I've poured out to you. Will you trust me with everything? Everything. There's nothing you can hold back. Nothing. So, let's go quickly through these. Owe no one anything except to love one another. The continuing payment, pay taxes, pay your dues, pay this, pay that, can be paid in full. There is an end. There's a termination to taxes. You can actually pay all your taxes. But this obligation, this debt to love one another, you cannot pay back. There's no bottom to it. Why? Because there's no bottom to the way God loves you and I or this world. He loves this creation. He gave His Son for this creation. He plans to redeem this creation and bring the new Jerusalem down here. We're not going to go up there and be on clouds floating around. We're going to come back here. We may go up there for a while, a short period of time, maybe moments, maybe we, don't, we won't even know, but we may be up in heaven for a while. But the Scriptures terminate in Revelation 21 and 22 with the coming of the new Jerusalem. Here, God loves this world and He loves everybody in it and He wants to redeem it and He's begging for us to love the world and people the way He loves them. The one debt that can never be repaid is continuing to love one another. That debt cannot be paid. So very quickly, let me say a couple things about law and a couple things about love, what love is, what love is not. What, what law is he talking about? He's talking about the Ten Commandments. How do we know? Because he's quoting the second table about others. No murder, no adultery, no stealing, no witness, uh, false witness, no coveting. He's mentioning these things. And then he says, love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting from Leviticus 19. And Jesus also quoted from Leviticus 19 in his Sermon from the Mount and other places. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to your neighbor. And so therefore you're fulfilling the law. Now this, scholars have argued about this. What is Paul doing? Is he saying that you can fulfill the law Completely just by loving one another. Can you do that? And Paul's not saying that. How are you made righteous before God? Anybody? By faith, through grace, plus what? Nothing. 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 Why is he saying we can fulfill the law? Because he's saying we can fulfill the law in spirit as we trust the Lord and we do extend love to other people, especially our enemies and those that curse us. How was how the letter of the law fulfilled? Jesus fulfilled the letter of the law so that you could fulfill 
the law in spirit. You can't fulfill the letter. None of us can. He did, not so we wouldn't have to, but so that we could. He does it to open our lives up so that we can truly sacrifice ourselves on that altar in Romans 12 without shedding a drop of our own blood. Except maybe in martyrdom. But even then, not a drop will be lost. It's it's amazing. It's mind-boggling. And when the church has gotten this into its bones, we have done amazing things throughout the history of the world. And when we've not done this, Christianity has a black mark against it that is horrific. And so why? Why would your pastors make these impassioned pleas? Why did the Apostle Paul make these impassioned pleas, especially during a time when persecution was ramping up and the minority people were Christians and they had no rights? Why? Because the danger, the lure of power. So what is love? Let me tell you what love is not. It is not feelings. It's not emotions. It's not an interior kind of disposition, an emotional uh, draw towards someone or something. Now this is what our modern culture tells us. It is a creation of modernity that love is romantic and emotional and all of that. All you have to do is go back maybe a hundred years, maybe further, and love was not that. Love was acting, committing. It was following a, a dictate that was laid before you, and you did it out of love, and you loved out of the, the obligation to love, and the feelings sometimes would follow, sometimes they wouldn't. But God promised that He would make it right if we would trust Him with love. So it's not these romantic things that you hear about. And our world is just, we're drowning in this. And so I have to say something about it. It's not feelings. Not any more than faith is a feeling. Just like faith is a commitment, an action, a decision to trust Jesus, love is a decision a choice, an action because God has asked you to do it. No other reason. He just asks you to do it. And then He gives you thousands of reasons why you should do it and why it won't be a problem. But we don't believe that part. But listen, Paul, Paul's letting us in on something that is so powerful, folks. If you take this in today, you'll never be the same. You just won't. What love is not? It's not emotions, feelings, sentiment, passion, stuff like that. It may create those, but that's not what it is. What is love? It's an obligation and a debt. That's what he's saying right here. Love is an obligation and a debt. It's an action, a choice that you make. And there are actions and choices that you are making because of a previous commitment you made To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself because as 
Paul said in previous chapter in Romans, we love because he first loved us. While we were at our worst, he loved us. So how can we withhold love from anyone else when he first loved us with all our sins and all our guilt upon us? He saved us out of that so that we could love others with the same kind of love, same kind of forgiveness. And the reason we don't do it, folks, very simple. Self-protection, we're afraid we're going to get hurt. Yes? Well, it is mine. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. That's from John 14, 15. If you love me, you'll obey what I say about love. And when we don't, we've got to repent and then start loving again. Paul is exhorting the saints to give an honest impression of themselves to the world. They should conduct themselves, talking about us, in a manner befitting a higher station in life as the beloved of the Lord. You see, you're beloved by Him, so our actions and our life, our behavior, should match that, or at least strive to match that. Their outward expressions should conform to their inner regenerated being. This, a sociologist, Christian sociologists have said, this is why we have a mass exodus of youth from the church in this generation and previous generations because what kids see at home is not what they see how their parents act in church. They don't see the same thing. And so kids say, this isn't real. And they're already being, you know, their, their lusts and their desires are already screaming for attention. And so it's a good excuse. All my parents are hypocrites. And so now all these millennials are coming and say, we want authenticity. Look, you're not going to find authenticity and you're, you're going to find hypocrisy in the church. But you also hopefully will find the one non-hypocrite. The one that was the same with everybody because he saw the death and the ravagedness of sin in everybody, including the Pharisees and, and the, 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 the prostitutes and the drunkards. All. He saw them all and he had the same guttural attraction and desire and compassion from God to see them redeemed. And when I look in the mirror and I tell you all this stuff, folks, I'm looking at myself and my own kids who are now adults. Look, open your eyes. Are we the same here in this building, at church, and when we get home and we're sitting in front of our computer screen or going out to eat or going into a bar or going wherever you go, are you going to be different there than you would be anywhere else? And if you are, then own it, confess it, trust the Lord. Why define love by actions and choices? Because God's love in the Bible is always defined by His actions and His choices to love. God so loved the world that He gave. 
Love is patient, kind, not jealous. Go through the list in 1 Corinthians 13. A description of the way God is perfectly. I remind you, my dear friends, love one another. This is not a new commandment, John said. But one we've had from the beginning. Love means doing what God has commanded us. He commanded us to love one another. Not sentiment, but to make choices that are for the good of someone else, even at your own expense. Dick Lucas, who I quoted last week, this amazing man, he said this, I go to the law and I ask the law, what am I to do? And the law says, love your neighbor. I go to love and I ask, what must I do? And love says, follow my commandments. That is apostolic Christianity. That is what this world is dying to see. And I mean that literally. And look, we're a small church, just a few of us here. But we, could, we can do this. Yes? We can love the world this way. Why don't we do it? Well, Paul says we're not woke. (laughs) We didn't wake up. We need to wake up. There is wokeness in our world today. It's all over the social media and the news and all that. And it's, it's really unfortunate, but there it is. What is it to be woke? Being woke, all you have to do is look it up in a dictionary, is a state of being aware of things around you. It's an awareness. Now, you take that wokeness and you start applying it to things like politics and and racial justice and sexuality and this and that, and you just start applying it willy-nilly, without any filter, just raw, just Put it out there. Woke, I'm woke, I'm woke, I'm not woke. I'm not, look at those woke. Woke, 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 woke. Now you have a problem. Now you have a serious problem because then you have an avenue to demonize others. Oh, well, they're woke. We'll just kill them. Well, they're not woke enough, so we'll censor them. We'll cancel them. We'll do this. We'll do that. And everybody's equally guilty, folks. It's not the right or left, believe me. In our country... They're one big, fat, hot mess. Amen? And the church is over here going, oh, I don't know, let's see which team wins and I'll go join their parade. Heavenly days. What is gospel wokeness? Same thing. It's being aware. It's a state of being aware of all things. But you're awake from darkness to light. You're, you've got a new set of... Vi- you have new eyeglasses so that you can see the world. And you, you're able to not get on a continuum like we were talking about this morning before the service, on some continuum between right and left and this whole line, you know, right, left. You get up here on the gospel. The gospel is not somewhere along this continuum. The gospel is its own thing. Jesus is his own thing. He doesn't belong to any of us. We belong to him. He defines what wokeness is. Not them. Not even us. 
He defines what we are to see, how we are to react to those things, how we are to love. Unless we're woke in the biblical sense, we're going to make all of the wrong choices and wrong decisions and plunge the world into just another 500 years of its same old stuff. Why the urgency? He says, time is passing. I've used this uh, illustration before, folks. You know when a, when a tidal wave goes off in the Pacific Ocean or a, an earthquake, a tidal wave is set off. And that tidal wave could be horrific or it could just be mild. It doesn't, you know, depends. But once the earthquake happens, the thing starts moving and there's no stopping that. And the earthquake that happened in Christianity is the day that Jesus emerged from the tomb. An earthquake was set off. And the tidal wave has been coming all this time. In fact, the tidal wave is closer now than when we first started the service. And you refuse to say amen. Coming nearer every moment, every day. Time is short, he says. Why urgency? Because you don't know the number of your days. You don't know when your number is up. I think there's a little chromosome or a DNA thing somewhere. One strand of DNA that has a date on it. And nothing you do is going to change that date. God knows the number of your days. He knows that we're just dust. And He's asking us to, to come to reality with that and trust me because otherwise you do just become dust. And nothing matters. The gospel is the best news, the greatest news this world has ever, ever had. And yet we just, sometimes we don't see it. What is the sleep he's describing? This is, this is really something. It is lethargy, non-aggressive, non-proactive, lazy Christianity. I'll practice my Christianity when it's all joy and bubbles and rainbows in the sky and can't use rainbows anymore, so we'll use something else. I don't know. Whatever's up in the sky that looks really cool. If, as long as it's all that cool stuff, we'll, we love being a Christian. But let the doctor tell you you have cancer. Or you just lose, unexpectedly lose. Let any kind of disaster come along and immediately we start to question the goodness of God and the mercy of God and maybe He's not blessing me and what did I do wrong and on and on and on instead of turning our eyes to Jesus, fixing our eyes on that and say if there was ever a time in history of mankind when God should have got up off His throne and thrown lightning bolts down on this earth, it was when they arrested His Son. And He didn't do that so that we could escape and have just a Disneyland on earth. He did that so that we could recapitulate His life here on earth. Wherever and however it takes us. That we become a living sacrifice, as Dawson said to us a few weeks ago. We can lay our lives down. That we can reject our rights, even though they may be owed to us 
by a government or a, a, a constitution or a declaration of it, whatever. Fine, enjoy those privileges. But at the end of the day, our God is in heaven and He's on His throne. And our loyalty and our allegiance is to Him to make choices, make decisions because of what He's done for us. And the power behind that, folks, I don't have... Look, Christianity turned the world upside down when they did this. Right? You history buffs turned the world upside down. And there have been a few times when it's happened again. And I pray to God this 21st century, we can do it again. Even this little church, even just us on the west side of El Paso. Start looking for ways to give your life away even if it costs you. How do we be in His presence? Because Paul ties this to being in Christ's presence. How do you clothe yourself? He says, clothe yourself with the presence of Jesus Christ. Remove dark deeds. He's asking for action. It's not okay to go out and get drunk out of your mind. Or to go do drugs and get blitzed out of your mind. Or to spend hours on the computer looking at pornography. And, and talking ugly about people uh, who live next door to you. Your neighbors and your friends. It's not okay to curse the government. And curse the It's not okay. It's just not. It's antithetical to Christianity. We're, we have no strength when we do this. We lose but when we start to live our lives powerfully and aggressively like Jesus, we put Him on like a suit of clothes. How do you do that? Well, in order to put on His presence very quickly, you have to be in His presence. Why do you think we harp on you to come to church? Because being here in His presence, this is His presence. This is special Sunday. But also every day, in the journey, we ter- teach our men how to do personal, our, and our ladies too, personal worship. How do you spend time with God? It's not just little devotions, and everybody has a little devotional book. It's more than that. It is being in His presence every minute, every breath you take. I don't know how to do that. That's why we have discipleship, and church, and Sunday school, and people, and groups, and, we try, and, we, and outreach. Because it's there that you'll find the presence of Jesus. Not some mystical encounter. If you get one of those, great, treasure it. But they're rare. If people have one in their life or two in their life, that's amazing. Most of us, like I've never had anything like that happen. And if I did, I certainly wouldn't tell anybody about it. Because they'd want what I have. And I'm not going to give you what I have. You've got to be in His presence. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, he says in 12. All 11 chapters comes to 12 and he said, Now, present your bodies a living sacrifice. It's your reasonable service of worship. What's unreasonable about that? 11 chapters of Romans, you should be ready to lay your life down. Amen? One of my favorite quotes from Horatius Bonar, I've used it many times, but a lot of new people here, so listen. 
To be entitled to use another's name when my own name is worthless. To be allowed to wear another's raiment because my own is torn and filthy. To appear before God in another's person, the person of the beloved Son. This is the summit of all blessing. The sin bearer and I have exchanged names and robes and persons. I am now represented by him. He now appears appears in in the presence of God for me. All that makes him precious and dear to the Father has been transferred to me. His excellency, his glory are seen as if they were mine. And I receive the love and the fellowship and the glory as if I had earned them all. So entirely one am I with this sin bearer that God treats me not merely as if I had not done the evil I have done, but as if I had done all the good which I have not done, but which my substitute has done for me. In one sense, I am still the poor sinner, once under God's wrath, but in another, I am altogether righteous and shall be forever because of the perfect one in whose perfection I now appear before God. That is apostolic Christianity. That's the Christianity that will change the world and us. Will you trust him? I hope you will. Father, thanks for these few minutes to consider these things that are sometimes very hard to hear. As we examine ourselves, I pray, Father, that you will surround us with your arms and cords of love and teach us what it is to love one another. Help us, save us, and have mercy on us, O God, according to your grace. Amen.